This week on the Rail Splitter podcast, we have a very special guest for you. Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mary, and I am joined tonight by Rail Splitter Nick. What's up to everybody burning the calories on that rowing machine? <laughs> so it wouldn't be a Rail Splitter episode without one of Nick's very unique introductions. And although he's not with us tonight um, physically, Rail Splitter Jeremy is definitely with us in spirit. Um, our guest tonight is Bjorn Skaptison. I hope I said that properly. <laughs> yep. He's nodding at me that I did. Um, he works at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, Illinois, which I unfortunately have never visited before, but it is on my bucket list of bookstores to get to because if anybody knows me, they know I am a huge bibliophile and I collect books about Lincoln and the Civil War. So welcome Bjorn to the Rail Splitter podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting me, Mary. Lovely to be here. Thank you, Nick. Oh, no problem. You know, I feel bad I'm in Rockford, and I've never been at the bookstore. So I need to get my ass out there and uh, come on down. I think you'll enjoy it when you do. We'll make yes. it worth your time. All right. That's good to hear. Good yeah. to hear. Maybe the next Real Sweater road trip needs to be to Chicago. I don't know if I'm going to wait for that, though. So I might just go on my own, and then I'll scope some good eateries around the area. Okay. Chicago is a terrific uh, Civil War and Lincoln town. I mean, there's so much Civil War and Lincoln stuff here. Uh, you'd probably surprise you being all these miles from any battlefield, but it's Civil War memory in Chicago is amazing. You see it everywhere. Oh, that's, yeah, because I think, well, Robert Lincoln and Mary Lincoln lived there for a time, didn't they? Um, they sure did. Yeah, and I think uh, General Sheridan lived there as well. He did. I think he, did. he was in charge during the fire. That's right, yeah, and that's where I think his uh, papers were, like all his writings from the war, a lot of them were lost during the fire, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a lot of Lincoln stuff was lost during the fire. It's too bad. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's really sad that all that stuff was lost, well before digitization was a thing. <laughs> and I, unfortunately, have never been to Chicago before. I didn't really realize how close it was to me until I drove to Springfield a few weeks ago, and I thought, wow, this is like doable in a day like i will do marathon road trips anywhere and like chicago is maybe i think seven eight hours from me which on a long weekend i would totally do that so i think i'm going to make it a point to do that because uh i need to get to the bookshop good and, and see everything else there is to see in chicago to do with abraham lincoln and the civil war so Bjorn, um, why don't you tell us about how you got into history, your journey into getting into Lincoln and all that? Um, that's one thing we always ask our guests to tell us about. Sure, happy to do it. Uh, you know, there's a, a like with a lot of people, there's a short answer and a long answer. And the short answer is I was born this way. Uh, I was born a nerd like the rest of us. Yay! And... Um, but the, uh, uh, the little bit longer answer is that uh, I'm a, uh, 
Uh, I'm a proud and patriotic native of the great state of Kansas and uh, grew up in the uh, Kansas City area in a uh, town there called Leewood. And my home was about four doors, about four houses from a road called State Line Road. Uh, so you got one guess to figure out what State Line Road means. Wow. Yeah, it's the line between the state of Kansas and the state of Missouri. Uh, so as a kid, if I was going to be a nerd anyway for history, this, uh, this story of bleeding Kansas and old John Brown and uh, the... Uh, and the troubles and the guerrilla warfare. And then the ba- there's a battle in the town where I lived. And so that stuff, that local history, um, even as being a little kid, you know, it lived around me, you know, and I, I that was romantic to me. And I wanted to study that and I wanted to learn that. Um, like a lot of kids, I left my uh, I left that behind for a while. And you know, when I was in um, uh, high school and college, I got more into performing arts. Uh, uh, theater, acting, directing, uh, music, performance, stuff like that. And then a couple of years into uh, undergraduate at University of Kansas, uh, my, uh, my mind turned back to my original obsession and uh, got back into history and added that to my life. It's been part of it ever since. Wow, very cool. Um, so what drew you into, how did you get to be working at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop then? Oh, well, that was good. I was a customer of theirs, a fan of the place when I was in, uh, even when I was down in Lawrence, Kansas, used to read their uh, catalogs and wish I could buy some of those stuff that they were advertising. Too expensive for a student, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I moved to Chicago, I marched into Abraham Lincoln Bookshop and demanded a job. Wow. And, uh, and the owner of the bookshop, Dan Weinberg, said, uh, no. No, you can't have a job. And and then I had to go away. And then a few years later, the phone rang and he said, uh, there's a job. And I started working there part time. And uh, about the time I went back to I went back to graduate school, I took, a, you know, I had a different life and career for a while. Then I went back to graduate school. And when I finished graduate school, that's when we decided to be a really great thing for me to come into the bookshop and make my everyday bread, uh, helping Abraham Lincoln Bookshop do the kinds of things that I was strong at as an historian and as, uh, uh, you know, the performer, the technology stuff. Uh, uh, the bookshop wanted to start doing these uh, live streamed book events, you know, where we could send a, a book signing with an author all the way around the world. And uh, I knew how to do that kind of stuff. I knew the technology. And uh, so it was a fit. Uh, it was around 2006. And that was the time we started doing the live stream book events. And I've been at Abraham Lincoln Bookshop ever since. Wow. That's a very cool journey that you took. So what is your, um, like, what's your favorite area to study in history? Is it Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War or is it? Oh, it's Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. uh, But uh, specifically in the Civil War, um, uh, back when I was in my early 20s, I picked up a, uh, I picked up an uh, an obsession with the, uh, battling campaign of Shiloh in mm. April of 1862. And uh, then the Shiloh battlefield, Shiloh National Military Park, that sort of turned my head toward uh, the field of public history as opposed to the traditional uh, view of teaching. And uh, so when I was in graduate school, I managed to, again, 
doing the same thing as I did at Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, showing up and making demands of the people until they broke, until they cracked. I managed to get myself first an internship and then a couple of years worth of seasonal employment as a National Park Service Ranger at Shiloh National Military Park and Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center. Wow. And so that was my part-time, that was my summer job when I was in grad school, before I came to Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. That, so it's been Shiloh. The answer is Shiloh, yeah. That's very cool. Shiloh's a very, um, it's probably, like, my favorite battle to study is Chickamauga and the, Ch- and the battles for Chattanooga. Um, that whole area really interests me but then the next one after that is probably shiloh because of just it's grant and sherman not exactly at their best it's their kind of trial by fire um but they come out of it i think stronger and having learned more for it uh nick and i um back in april we did a couple episodes about the battle shiloh and that was like the the research i did for that i finally understood how that battle unfolded and it made me just I think respect that battle more but also like just I see why it's so interesting and I really really I know Nick you've been there right to Shiloh yeah it was the first battlefield I've ever been to so beautiful battlefield love it must have made an impact being the first one yeah oh it made a huge impact so I just fell in love when I was there just walking it and I love to walk the battlefields as much as possible so um, yeah, it got me hooked for sure. So you had the dream job as far as I'm concerned. It uh, was a dream a job. It was a dream job. I only did it for two summers, uh, or three, including the internship. But uh, now I can always look back and say, yeah, I did that. I got to wear gray and green and a smoky bear hat and be a <laughs> National Park Service ranger, live on the battlefield. Shiloh has, you know, park housing. Uh, so every single day, both of the, all three of those summers, I was living on the battlefield. It was heaven. Is great. Wow. So did you, you would have given tours while you were there? I'm sorry, could you repeat? Um, you would have given tours while you were there then as like yeah. a park ranger? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what I wanted to do, I was studying public history at uh, my uh, graduate school was at Loyola University of Chicago. They have a fine public history program at Loyola. And so my focus those three summers was to develop my chops as a public historian. And that meant doing battlefield tours, battlefield programs, developing new battlefield programs, trying to incorporate the latest scholarship and import it from academia and writing into battlefield tours and uh, ask those questions that academics like to ask about what about. Uh, what about race? What about gender? What about class? How does that fit into the Battle of Shiloh? It has to be site specific. You know, do those questions, can those questions be answered on the Shiloh battlefield when you're talking about the topic of the Battle of Shiloh? And the challenge resulted yes, 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 again and again. It's so much fun. I did about 250 unique programs each summer that I was there. Wow. And they've. Uh, uh, they've been kind enough, uh, generous enough to invite me back every year since then. Uh, on the anniversary of the battle, April 6th, seven, mm-hmm. and 8, uh, they do uh, uh, three straight days of long-form battlefield tours. We can go out and do two or three hours and two or three miles. And they've been good enough to invite me back to volunteer. And so I've been uh, leading every year, April 6th, seven, and 8. You'll find me at Shiloh leading battlefield tours of the Shiloh Battlefield. That's very, very cool. That's something I would like. I usually, I usually go to Chattanooga every April. Like 
Easter weekend. But I'm thinking some of you are like, I want to go to Shiloh. And uh, that's two road trips we got planned one to Chicago bookstore, one to Shiloh in April. Yep. Yeah, do the April 6, 7, and 8. It, it's kind of a uh, um, it's kind of a burning man for Shiloh nerds, you know? Uh, like three <laughs> straight days. Seven. I usually do about 25 hours of programming over those three days. Wow. And then there are three other historians that all do about the same, you know? It's, it's So for the people that make the road trip to be there for three straight days, it's an immersive experience. It really is pretty great. Well, that's what I love about going to the battlefields, I think, is like you can be so much more immersed in them than, I mean, museums are great um, to see the artifacts, but to be at the battlefield and be immersed in the history. I think Jeff Shara, um, in one of his books in the, um, I think it was in The Smoke at Dawn, he makes some remark that he always believes like the battlefield is where you take in all the history of of everything like museums are great but the battlefield is is where it's at and that's why i love visiting them just so i can kind of get a sense of what happened even if the terrain isn't quite the same like it it's really um it's powerful to be where they were right right and one of the things i learned uh getting to be a a ranger one of the things i learned is that stuff is intentional that stuff is intentional if you're on a battlefield like the big five you know, including Shiloh and Chickamauga, Chattanooga. Uh, and you're walking around and you're looking at the monuments, you're looking at the tablets. Yeah, that is a story that the veterans told. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're on one of those battlefields, you are experiencing the battlefield as the, as the veterans wanted you to experience. Now, as a, as a historian, of course, when you step back to be a, a student of history, you go, aha, you know, maybe I need to ask some serious questions about the spin that the veterans are trying to say. Yeah. But on the emotional level, you're standing on Snodgrass Hill. Uh, you're standing at, uh, say, the uh, Opdyke's Tigers 125th Ohio Monument. Yep. And you go, wow, this is so cool. Uh, and you can do both. You can be a critical student of history and still immerse yourself in the emotional experience that the veterans themselves set up for you. Yeah, and yeah, those two places you just mentioned, that's where I hang out the most when I'm at Chickamauga is uh, Snodgrass Hill, and I always go over to see Oak Dykes Tigers. Um, It's my... Oh, Oh, really? I I like those guys. Yeah, absolute favorite spot to be. Um, My husband and I, because he'll go with me, we usually spend like one evening for a couple hours just sitting on Snodgrass Hill. Um, because we've been lucky and had very good weather when we've been there. It's been very nice. It's very quiet because uh, it's Easter weekend and apparently not many people are around at that time. So, But it is um, a great place to go and reflect and just to know that what General Thomas did there too is very, uh, it's a very powerful place for sure. Right. And what General Thomas and his troops did uh, however many, 150 some years ago tomorrow. Yes, yep. Yeah, and that's actually our next rail split. Our episode that drops, well, like on the anniversary tomorrow is part one of Chickamauga. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that'll be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about public history that kind of drew you in? Well, uh, I think it was probably uh, one of the reasons I spent uh, about a decade 
uh, out of school, trying to do uh, other things with my life. Uh, it was that uh, I don't have a, a real affinity for, and if you'll forgive me, if anybody, someone will forgive me, I don't have a real affinity for the traditional style of teaching. I don't think I would have been a good classroom instructor. And uh, yet I love telling these stories and I love researching these stories. And so about the time I decided, hey, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to do the graduate school thing. Um, and the school I was looking at, again, Loyola University of Chicago, had this fine uh, public history program. And I sat with uh, uh, the guy, who, the professor who was going to be my advisor and later turned into a fine mentor, uh, Dr. Theodore Karamansky. And Ted Karamansky was in the lead of the academic end of public history. He said, hey, if you're not into teaching in the classroom, think about this other thing. Uh, this, uh, this, uh, there's a career path outside of the classroom if you want to be a historian. It's called public history. And very recently, like within the last 10 or 20 years, colleges have actually started to put together programs for public history and recognize all of these professional roots uh, in uh, history that are not, that don't go through the classroom. And so, and those are going to include exactly what I loved, wanted to do all my life was be a park service ranger and get to wear that hat. And, uh, but also archivists are public historians, uh, museum curators, uh, public historians. And, uh, and then finally where I landed a dealer in rare books and autographs and manuscripts, uh, that's public history. Uh, finding a way to do the craft of history outside of the classroom and for the general public, you know, not for students who paid to sit in a chair and listen to me, uh, you know, talk a lecture or something like that. That's I, I know that's kind of a long answer, but I think about it a lot. No, that that's the perfect answer. That's I and I really relate to that because people used to tell me. Um, with my love of history, they're like, oh, you should be a teacher, you'd be a great teacher. And it just, it never was something I wanted to do. But then, you know, with the advent of Twitter, um, with, like, Facebook Live, with doing the podcast, I've been able to kind of bring these stories to people and, like, connect with other people who are in it and learn from them as well. And that's the great thing about I think where the field of public history is going is you can make so many connections now, like the internet, like things like Facebook Live, the live streams that you do at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. They uh, have made right. the they've made the world a smaller place when it comes to history and be able to connect to people, and that's a really um, amazing thing that's happening. Right, and in my opinion, uh, from the point of view of somebody who's who's a public historian, uh, the. Uh, the technology is opening up doors that I don't think anybody thought would be open. And most professional historians, I was going to say most professional historians, but I'd say almost every professional public historian I've ever known is a person who is enormously curious and enormously welcoming to hear the thoughts and the voices and the communications of people who are not in the profession, but have access to technology in order to explore, uh, explore the questions that they want, mm -hmm. that they want to answer. And then that connection of technology gives them access to some expertise 
and people can make the journey together. Yeah, I think with public history, it allows you people who are interested in a topic to get together, whether they're professionals or not. And but what they share is that passion to want to know more. And when you get people collaborating in that type of manner, everybody just grows from that, whether you're a professional historian or not. And it's kind of like what we're doing here tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all going to take something away from this. Well, me and Mary, not sure how much you'll get from us. But um, <laughs> but that, that's the great thing about public his- history is we are now finding a way to provide more avenues for people to get exposed to that. And they come there, and as a public historian, it's got to be great because you're probably being exposed to a lot of people who want to get it, who are eager to get it. Whereas sometimes in the classroom, I hate to say it, there's maybe one or two kids in my class that don't want to be there. Um, maybe it's more like one or two that do, but um, <laughs> that, that's always a struggle from the classroom perspective. You have some people who they got to take because they got to graduate high school. So, um, and that's a different challenge, but right, but that's, yeah. It's got to be awesome. It is awesome. And, and uh, I, I should say that by comparison to that, and uh, uh, don't want to make you feel bad, Nick, but by comparison to that, Shiloh is a very remote place. It was then and it is now. Nobody drives to Shiloh unless they want to talk about the Battle of mm-hmm. Shiloh. And so uh, doing a program, a ranger doing a program at the, battle, at the Shiloh battlefield, you're going to get a... Uh, uh, it's not a captive audience. It's a volunteer audience. You know, they came a long way to be there, and you get to have that conversation. And it's really, uh, for the rangers that work there, when I did in the, as a volunteer, it's very fulfilling. Uh, but it's also a privilege that, you know, uh, sometimes classroom teachers don't get to have it. Um, you know, I get a volunteer audience. They want to hear what I have to say. Yeah, I know. That's got to be awesome. And you're right. Shiloh is out there. It, it is remote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, which makes it special, too, at the same point, that it is that way. So It is. Uh, the level of preservation is uh, extraordinarily high. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's uh, other than uh, the uh, the foliage, the, the, the nature, the age of the forest is uh, kind of at the opposite end of the forest cycle in 2019 than it was in 1862. So you just have to explain that. You explain that to people. It wasn't a thick forest. The forest at Shiloh wasn't like uh, the wilderness or something like that. It was old growth, you know, big trees. You could see further. But other than that, the you know, the, the park has managed to successfully, the park in cooperation with groups like Civil War Trust has successfully managed to conserve, save, and interpret about 96% of the 1894 mandate. I mean, they got it all. It's there. Wow. That's that's pretty remarkable. That And, and yeah, I'd never thought before of Shiloh being really remote. You know, like, yeah, if I was going to go to Shiloh, it would be just to go to Shiloh. It would be like, I'm going to go to this, like, little corner in Tennessee and see what's there. I'm going to be going for yeah. Shiloh. It's not... I would think maybe you probably get a little bit of a different audience than you would get, say, going to Gettysburg, because Gettysburg is like, that's, that's the battlefield everybody seems to know. Um, right. Whereas somewhere like Shiloh, and even like, even Chickamauga is, uh, like, it's not somewhere where I think a lot of people have been. And that's the one thing that I've enjoyed doing is when I went there the last time, I did a few Facebook lives from there. So I 
I felt like I like, you know, I was bringing it to people that couldn't be there and showing them what the battlefield was like. And that's what I like about the technology that's around today is you can do that. You can bring it to people. And um, while I was there, there was a couple park rangers doing a Facebook live um, about uh, the death of General Lytle. And so yes. there they are doing that Facebook live and people are watching it and able to see it in different parts of, you know, not just the U S but around the world as well. And that's really remarkable. So that's maybe like, hopefully something like that with that technology and with public history, you can draw people into visiting um, maybe some of the battlefields that don't get the love that they, they do deserve. Right. Uh, that's true. That's true. And, uh, and, uh, the, what they do at uh, Chickabaga, Chattanooga, uh, and I, I do know some of the people, I have relationships and friendships with some of the people still that work there, and uh, they are the ranges there are right out front. You know, mm-hmm. They do some really great programming, and they're willing to exploit technology and do things like what you, were, what you witnessed, do a, uh, uh, a, live, uh, uh, a Facebook Live from uh, Lytle's Hill, and give people at home a battlefield program that they might not be able to have. And frankly, I, I think the people right now I'm thinking about the park National Park Service and not other other things. But, you know, the National Park Service needs and they constantly think about how do we reach out and and take the stewardship of our resources, our topics to a larger audience and especially to audiences that for one reason or another cannot be on the battlefield and enjoy it the way others mm-hmm. do. Uh, imagine, uh, uh, you know, uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that for one reason or another uh, live their life with uh, limited mobility and they can't get out and walk a battlefield. They can't walk up. You know, someone can't walk up Snodgrass Hill and stand for an hour in a traditional battlefield program. The people at Chickamauga and Chattanooga are providing a very, very valuable uh, resource um, for people that might not be able to get up on that hill at all. Yeah, that's that's very true. And that's that's one thing I did think of when they were doing that. And, you know, I like I was standing close enough to them. I could hear like obviously hear it. And they were getting questions from people, too, which was I was like, oh, this is great. They're getting questions. So people are interacting with them and. Um, it's just, it's a great way for people to learn about the battle if they can't be there. Um, and it's really awesome to see that happening. Yeah. I, 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 I was impressed in my two summers, three summers with the national park service the, there. Uh, these people have a, a public history is also practical history and they have a lot of hard work to do every day. I, like I said, I did 250 programs and I also parked about a million cars <laughs> and I stood out in the summer, you know, stood out in the sun, you know. Hey, one minute you're doing a program, the next minute you put that orange vest on and you help people park their cars. And it's um, and so what they do to uh, preserve and interpret and just execute the stewardship of the people's battlefield is uh, it's a noble undertaking and you have to admire him for doing it. Mm-hmm, for sure. And so what you're doing with public history, you've kind of transferred that to what you're doing at the Abraham Lincoln bookshop now. Um, is that correct with the live streams with the authors and all that? Like, would you consider that still to be like public history? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, no, but, but I have moved from, I think an important 
thing to think about, and we might want to talk about this, uh, depends on how deep we want to go into the nuts and bolts of history. But I have moved from uh, public his the literal public history, meaning I was getting paid out of taxpayers' dollars, mm -hmm. uh, to a commercial type of public history. And, uh, you know, there can be no, there in my, in my opinion, there can be no... Um, uh, question about the reason I'm sitting in front of that camera with that historian, with that author, is to sell you a book. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a salesman. Uh, and But I also recognize that the reason people want to buy the books is the same reason I want to buy the book. And the same reason I want to read the book, the same reason I want to talk about the book. The transaction's a little different. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but yeah, doing an hour-long interview with some of our uh, favorite historians and they have their book right there and people buy them and they sign them and then we ship them to them. You know, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. You're, you mentioned you like to read Jeff Shara. Yes. And he's been on our show twice. You know, I've had a you know, couple chances to interview the guys and it's, it's really cool. Yeah. He's a, I met him at Gettysburg last November. He is an incredibly down to earth, nice, approachable person. I got to talk to him um, for a few minutes because my favorite book by him is The Smoke at Dawn, um, which is okay. about battles for, for Chattanooga. Um, right. And he was just so approachable. But I would love to sit and listen to him talk for longer, like just about yep. his research, like how he does all that, because the level of detail he goes into his books is just it, it's really amazing. Yep. Yeah, he, do, he does his homework, no doubt about that. And uh, when he makes a, he's writing, and that's one of the fun things about talking to different types of authors who write in different types of genre. Uh, Mr. Shara is uh, absolutely confident and unapologetic about the fact that he writes fiction. Uh, and that's how he interacts with history. But he's also the kind of guy that when he chooses to make an historical claim, it's right. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got the he's got the research to back it up. Yeah. Now, that's not going to be the same as someone uh, like one of, a, a, you know, take, we had uh, David Light on our program a few months ago to talk about his uh, biography of Frederick Douglass. And, uh, of course, Professor Blight is a academic college professor. And, you know, every single claim he makes about his his topic is going to be footnoted and you know, cited and then uh, wrapped up in the bibliography. Two different authors writing about history in two different ways. And I love the fact that we as booksellers uh, and public historians get to get to interview both of them and talk about them, talk about their history on their terms. Mm -hmm. How was the transition for you going from, you know, the public historian, park ranger into kind of you know, still a plain historian role, but as more of a salesperson. Was that a difficult transition for you? Um, there are difficulties in it, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I would say the, the first thing I wrestled with, and uh, uh, I, I, I certainly uh, want to say this in a way that my, uh, my boss, Dan Weinberg, the owner of the shop, takes it right. The first thing I wanted to wrestle with, with was uh, the ethics of... Uh, making uh, historical claims as an historian while in the act of sales. 
And I had to think about that. And I had to think about how I was going to do it and how we did it. And, uh, and so, and, and so I had to work through that finally arriving at the conclusion, uh, that, uh, honesty and transparency is going to be the key to, uh, making a valid historical argument, whether you're getting paid in cash for selling a book or getting paid out of the students' tuitions because they're sitting in, in your classroom, uh, the ethics of history are going to be the same. And so it's the choice of the person. If I'm going to sit in Abraham Lincoln bookshop and interview authors and sell their books, uh, the change I needed to make was to realize that understanding the ethics of this profession and abiding by them uh, transparently uh, was the key to saying, well, it doesn't matter how I make my daily bread as long as I do history right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Uh, are you the one who goes out? Are you seeking the guest or the guests coming to you? A little bit of both? Yeah, we need to get the guests into the bookshop. Uh, we can't get them to sign the books <laughs> that are sold unless yeah. they're sitting in the bookshop. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, th- that's that's part of the business end of the trade, of the book trade. And I had to learn that only after I was hired. Uh, and that involves uh, being on the phone and emailing with uh, publicists at the publishing houses in New York and all over the country saying, you know, send me send me your author and we will give you a book signing and we will broadcast that book signing around the world and you'll make money and we'll make money and the author will be get, get to talk to the audience around the world. But yeah, a big part of my job is working with uh, uh, publicists in the, in the publishing industry to get the authors to Chicago to do a program. Are there a lot of bookstores doing this? Because I don't know if I've heard of many bookstores that take this approach with the online. Yeah, it's a very cool approach. Oh, thank you. It's it's just us, as far as I know. Wow, and, genius! Uh, either good news or or bad news. <laughs> but oh. we do we do well. We do well. The books sell and the events pay for themselves. And of course, there's the antiquarian. The other side of our business is antiquarian which permits us to move the decimal point several points to the right. Yes. And uh, when those sales happen, that's what puts the bread on the table and keeps us in business. Um, what's your approach when you're sitting down with some of these authors? How do you approach each interview? Uh, well, the first thing we have to do is get the book and uh, try to get a reading copy mm-hmm. of the book. Because we try to get them, in order to get the best sales, we want to get the book when it's new. You know, when it's hot and it's new. So... The publicist has to send us the advanced reading copy. We read it. Uh, and then once we get the author in there, we try to lead them through uh, the a discussion about their book in a way that will give them the best way to discuss their book with our customers, their potential uh, book buyers. Uh, so A number one, read the book and know it, which is unusual, I finally found out. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this a couple of years before an author leaned over to me during a broadcast and said, you read the book? <laughs> <laughs> Commonly, the publicists send out pre, you know, pre-written questions and they sit on, you know, 
the public TV or the radio and the host reads the questions and the author answers them. And so uh, you know, got that wide eyed author that went, wow, you actually read our book. <laughs> okay. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk about the book. Um, so usually once we know the book and we have the questions that we've written out, um, it's pretty easy getting the author to come out and really do an entertaining show where they get a chance to talk about their book. Then the, the other part of the live broadcast is for most Civil War or Lincoln books, we have something in the shop that helps the author to illustrate that book. Mm. And we have the technology to make our live streams go out uh, that, that they look more like a TV show than a Facebook Live. Um, so it's a two-camera shoot. We have two cameras. We can switch between cameras. We have a camera operator. Um, and then we can throw up graphics. And so that the people at home can see a high-definition picture of an Abraham Lincoln letter, uh, a Frederick Douglass photograph, uh, an oil painting, a, uh, uh, a bronze sculpture something that will help the author illustrate the story that they're telling. And that is really interesting. And it helps the people that are buying the book also see, hey, there's this other stuff. You know, if you can, A, if you can decide, if you can afford it, you can buy it. But if you can't, here's your chance to enjoy it. Here's your chance to see, hey, this is, uh, gosh, what did we just do with Sidney Blumenthal? Um Sidney Blumenthal's new book involves the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Mm -hmm. So we were able to show people original copies of the Lincoln-Douglas debate book. You know, this is the kind of thing that would have been handed out at an 1860 Republican campaign event. You know, the first person that owned this book was a voter in the 1860 election, and this book helped them make their decision. You know, and that stuff really helps the author... Uh, uh, explain their book and what they're getting at and at the same time helps us talk to the customers at home and the history students at home saying history isn't just the book that the author is writing it's the stuff that the people left behind it is Abraham Lincoln letters and autographs and art and that original 1860 copy of the Lincoln Douglas mm -hmm. debates helped some voter make his decision, make his decision in 1860. And um, it's amazing when you look at it. And if you decide you want to give us a call and talk about the price, we'll do that too. Wow, that that's very cool. So do you find that when you have these events that you maybe sell some more of these kind of, I guess, you know, the Lincoln Douglas debate book you just mentioned, like, do you would you sell more of that stuff after you have these events then? Like, does it spark that interest into people buying those items yeah it sparks the interest uh you're not going to the phone's not going to ring while the camera is on the mm -hmm. thing yeah with an excited person on the other end saying you know hey let me write you a five figure four figure five figure check right now yeah um so you know and that's on the sales side that that's a soft sell yeah that's giving people internet content letting them know that this kind of stuff exists they can think about it uh, and then on the day when they feel comfortable making an investment, they can, you know, review our web page, mm -hmm. see stuff that's listed there, get a copy of our catalog. 
pick up the phone. You know, you don't buy something like that without having a good personal relationship with the person on the other end. You yeah. got to trust. Them. And then, so yeah, it's it, it's a soft sell. The thing you sh- the thing we show on a particular show, like the one we did last week, someone might call us next year. Yeah. You know, and that, and then that. So it's a it's a it's a uh, a soft sell, a long game. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, but in the end, we get it's really satisfying to get people a one of a kind item that's going to be real special for them in their life. Oh, for sure. And you've got a like I was looking around the website, you've got a lot of those on there. What are some of the like the like, what are a couple of the coolest Lincoln related or history items that you've seen in your time at the Abraham Lincoln bookshop? Yeah. I thought about, you asked me that question before when you sent the, mm-hmm. when, when you uploaded the Google Doc, yeah. I thought about it. Um, now, I, I want to give a short answer. Everything is cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, when you sent that question, I thought to myself, you know, there's never a day that I'm sitting at my desk when a book that was published in 1863 is not at arm's length. Uh, now, the financial value of that may be comparatively low compared to other things the really cool stuff but you know every single day and i sit down at my desk i look around and i go wow this is this is the stuff of history and it's really cool mm-hmm. uh, now to answer the question i think you're asking <laughs> one of a kind of stuff uh the bookshop since i've worked there we've handled uh, uh a table from wilmer mclean's parlor in appomattox uh, the table upon which the surrender documents were drafted. Uh, we handled that. Wow. Got to live with that in my office space for a while. Um, for several years, we had a bed that the Lincolns owned and was in the Lincoln home in Springfield. Uh, we uh, represented a private collector that owned that and had it on consignment. And it lived in our shop for several years. And I got to walk in in the morning and look at, oh, there's Lincoln's bed. You know? Wow. Uh and uh, right now, um, when I go into the shop every day, I get to look at an oil painting from Lice, uh, executed by uh, an artist named Charles Merck, uh, who worked for a photographer named Alexander Hessler. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and an oil painting from Lice, there's about two dozen that exist, uh, where the painter saw Mr. Lincoln and then put brushed the canvas and, and painted. Um, wow. I currently get to live with one of those. Uh, someday it'll translate into money and I'll be happy about that, but I'll also be sad that I don't get to live every day with the, uh, with the oil from life. Yeah. Yeah. That that's very cool. And those I, three examples. yeah, that that's, that's very cool. Like, I guess you've got a lot of cool stuff on, on the website and there's, there was a few things that I was looking at. I was like, Oh, I would, like to have that coffee bugs i'm sure no it was not coffee mugs actually it was i think it was a um it was a picture of general sherman on his horse outside atlanta and i think it was yeah. a stereo a stereoscope card yep yeah yep. that's pretty great that's, that's what i was eyeing up yeah um yeah and that's him sitting in a uh, sitting on his horse yeah at a one of the forts around Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Barnard took that photograph after the campaign. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, most of those photographs were taken after the campaign, but um, 
You know, if, yeah, if you do a little more research into that, you may have already done that. You know that George Barnard was Sherman's photographer. Mm-hmm. He followed that campaign, and he was making photographic images of battlefields a couple of days after, you know, some of those battles were fought. Now, it wasn't like when the photographers went to Gettysburg and took pictures of the dead bodies. Yeah. But we definitely get to see the the earthworks on the Rosaka battlefield, and you definitely get to see uh, some earthworks in the uh, uh, at the Peachtree Creek and the Pumpkin Vine Creek line, and uh, uh, images of Kennesaw Mountain with soldiers still standing around, and the battle is still the campaign is still ongoing. Yeah, wow. yeah, I can see why you would be drawn to that. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the one I was like, oh, that would be the one I would buy right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to talk about it, we can. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can negotiate right now on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> start negotiating. How do you get a lot of your artifacts that you guys have? Uh, well, I guess the first answer to that is there is a market. You know, there is a market, so there are sales, there are Civil War shows, there are Lincoln shows, and you'll see us at the auctions, you know, for the high-end stuff. You know, the valuable pieces will be at the auctions, and we're willing to put out, you know, we keep capital back so that we could buy nice things when it's time to do for an auction, and uh, you'll see that. But I think the most interesting way that we acquire stuff is the fact that we've been doing this for over 85 years. Mm-hmm. This firm has been doing this for over 85 years. And so a lot of really interesting things walk right in the door. That's awesome. And those are nice days, you know, when that happens. Uh, I've had customers walk in saying, hey, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my grandmother collected Lincolniana and uh, she died recently. We're going through her stuff and we found this receipt from 1955 from abraham lincoln bookshop and we looked on the internet and found out you're still in business so here we are you know and uh, and something that you know the original owner of abraham lincoln bookshop ralph newman mm-hmm. sold to a collector in 1955 and gave them joy for 50 years we're able to get it back and sell it to another collector who might get joy from it for the next 50 years. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. How did the books... The generation of employees after I'm dead. <laughs> the business is still going. We'll get to recycle it a third time. How did the bookstore get a start? Oh, that's a good story. It involves a lot of uh, uh, old-timey Chicago stories that involve the alcohol... Uh, <laughs> a lot of drinking, a lot of booze, and great old newspaper newspaper writers. Um, the store, the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, was originally founded by a grand old bibliopole bookseller uh, by the name of Ralph Newman. And old Ralph Newman, Ralph Newman was a great storyteller, a raconteur. You, at one time, he was a minor league ball player. He was a uh, uh, a merchant marine and sailed around the world and ended up back in Chicago in the 1930s, which is the same time that all those great authors were living in Chicago and writing and all those great bookshops were selling first editions. And gosh, gosh, uh, Ben Abramson was 
uh, representing a young author named John Steinbeck and giving him, you know, uh, his first, you know, uh, book signings for Grapes of Wrath. You know, that kind of scene was going on in the 30s when Newman, Ralph Newman, uh, opened a secondhand bookshop called Home of Books. And it was downtown. It was in the loop. And it was near the Chicago Daily News. And the Chicago Daily News had a couple of, uh, of journalists and writers that worked for it. Lloyd Lewis was one of them. And Carl Sandburg was another writer, uh, the great poet, was also a journalist that worked for Chicago Daily News. And Lewis and Sandburg would come over to, to uh, Newman's shop uh, of an afternoon. And they'd sit and they'd talk about Abraham Lincoln. It's just a general bookshop. They talk about Lincoln and they drink and they talk about Lincoln and they drink and they talk about Lincoln and they drink. Uh, at the time, Sandberg was writing the last four volumes of his six volume magisterial masterpiece, Abraham Lincoln, the Prairie Years, Abraham Lincoln, the Warriors. He's writing the Warriors at the time. So one afternoon they're sitting there, I presume, uh, drinking martinis in the middle of the bookshop. And Sandberg says to Newman, you know, Newman, you should sell all of these books and just sell books about Abraham Lincoln. Takes a drink. <laughs> Newman says, Newman takes a drink, says, sounds like a good idea to me. And he did it. He sold all the books off of his shelves for whatever he could get. And he only, after that, he only sold books about Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War. And presumably he gave a, a book signing for Carl Sandburg when the Warriors came out. Uh, so that was 1938 is when they actually established the brand Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. And uh, after that, it's been going for over 85 years now and or over 80 uh, years now. And uh, it's been it's moved all over. It's been a gypsy bookshop. It's moved all over Chicago. Uh, it's been in 10 different locations. We The most recent time we moved was 2016. And um, and then now we broadcast the, the bookshop over the internet all over the world, you know? Wow, that's uh, that that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that's that's the Marvel Comics origin story of Abraham Lincoln's <laughs> bookshop. That, that's real, I, like and I, I really appreciate that because actually my my grandfather opened a bookshop here in my hometown in 1956, and it's still operating um, today. That's amazing. And so I really appreciate like the the independent booksellers and all that. So that's a really like wow, it's very cool. Right, it's kind of inspiring to know you can actually last and. But the fact of the matter is, it's kind of a sad story, but the fact of the matter is we're the last survivor in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, in 1936, the whole scene of Chicago literature, you know, not only was John Steinbeck here and, you know, uh, Nelson Algren and Richard Wright and you know, all the way through those decades. And every one of them had, you know, bookshops that represented them, you know. And then they had antiquarian bookshops, rare bookshops for... You know, not just for history, but for literature and for fiction. And you could buy those first editions. Of, and as things stand now in 2019, we're like the last, the last survivor. All those great old bookshops, I could name a lot of them, and uh, but they're gone. Um, and uh, we're lucky 
that we're mm-hmm. still doing it. I think part of it is that we've embraced technology mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, nobody, no, no bookshop like ours with the prices we want to charge, you know, for the things we sell. Uh, nobody can stay in, in business by sitting behind your counter and waiting for customers to walk in. Uh, so, you know, most of our business, especially for the valuable stuff, you know, someone buys it and we ship it to Canada. We ship it to Rockford. Mm-hmm. We ship it to Los Angeles. We ship it around the world, you know. Uh, and so that keeps the that keeps the paychecks coming. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of like, it's just like the field of history too. Like, you have to evolve with the times. You can't just be expecting to teach history behind a classroom desk and having the students come to you. I think you have to bring it to people as well. Like it's kind of like you've got to make it accessible for people. And I think that's what you're doing with the Abraham Lincoln bookshop is you're bringing it to people, you know, you're getting online, you have a really awesome website and you do the live streams. So that's, you know, it's going to get, it's going to draw people in. Right. Right. And while, while we are, uh, unrepentant capitalists uh we are also um you know we love the fact that we're able to share the stuff with people yeah so as somebody who's read i'm assuming multiple lincoln civil war probably zillions have seen many come across your path for you what is your top lincoln book well there have been sixteen thousand of them (laughs) And they get and one gets published every week. Um, so, but I, I think I would answer your question. Said if you're asking about a cradle to grave biography, you know, straight up traditional biography of Abraham Lincoln, uh, I I would recommend uh, Ron White's A Lincoln. Yes, if I would go with a one volume. Mm-hmm. But I would also say you have the option of going with Michael Burlingame's Green Monster. Mm-hmm. That's the two. Two-volume, two-thousand-page um, biography, Abraham Lincoln, a, bi- uh, a biography, Abraham Lincoln, a life. And uh, they're both worthwhile. Um, I would say White is more entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of fun to read and yeah. you get a good story. Um, but if you want every last morsel, <laughs> then you have to go to Burlingame. Uh, and as you, if you know about Burlingame's work, you probably know he maintains a website where he continues to update uh, the uh, the bibliography in the background of, of that book. And, uh, Burlingame's book is a dynamic work on Lincoln, and it keeps growing and evolving. You know, so you buy the two thousand pages in paper, but that's not the end of your experience with the mm-hmm. book. It keeps growing. Oh yeah, White's bio would be my recommendation as well. Which one was yours? White's. Yeah. A. A. Lincoln, that one is, and his book about Grant, too, is American Ulysses is one of my American favorites, Ulysses. too. Right. Uh, White is a passionate author. Mm-hmm. He brings a lot of emotion and a lot of passion to his story. And when you set down those books, you feel moved about the subject matter. Very I much. About, you know, analytical, analytical writing has its place and it's very valuable. But when you sit down a when you set down a book like American Ulysses, you really think you've gotten to know Ulysses Grant. Yeah, I agree. 
So do you guys have any live streams coming up then um, that you would like our listeners to know about? Sure. We have one coming up on October 4th. Um, uh, David Hirsch and Dan Van Haften will be at Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. And they will be discussing uh, their new book called The Tyranny of Public Discourse. Hirsch and Van Haften are uh, two... um, Two gentlemen who are very interested in logic, reasoning, and public rhetoric. And uh, they understand that Lincoln used the geometric reasoning he learned from studying Euclid uh, to make his uh, political arguments. And so uh, this is a book in their series about about that. Very cool. uh, About Lincoln and Euclid. They've done three books on Lincoln and Euclid at this point. Really fascinating. Now, that these are analytical books. <laughs> uh, but uh, I recommend them. That's a that's really, I think I have one about that that um, actually, well, it was Angela who picked it up for me at the Abraham Lincoln Forum a few years ago. Um, and it was kind of a geometric uh, book about Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address, I think. Yeah, that, the, these are the gentlemen that did that. Okay, that's what I thought when I read your description of yeah, it. So that's those, what I, that book will help you spell out the six, the six uh, elements of a Euclidean proposition that's, and how Lincoln used that. And indeed, you can look at the Gettysburg Address, and they're right in there. He didn't write that by accident on the back of an envelope like mm-hmm. some hungover frat student. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, He thought it through. He thought it through, and it is built upon Euclid's geometry. And if the Gettysburg Address moves us today, it's not because it's uh, uh, it's not necessarily because it is um, eloquent. It's because it's true. Mm-hmm. It is uh, geometrically true. It's a proof of why uh, government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Very cool. You know, I approached the show like a drunken, hungover college kid. So... Um, <laughs> That's not true. That's, I, not, that's true. not true, Nick. I, I respect that, Nick. Excuse me while I take another drink of my own. <laughs> when I first started the show, that's probably a lot true, but um, not, not so much anymore anyways. <laughs> um, and so you most recently did a fundraiser at Coal Bar, which we actually, um, we found the, like, um, we, we usually open the show with a news article. I think it was episode 99. That was our news article. It was about this coal bar fundraiser that was happening. And that was where, yeah. like, your name was in the article. And that's where I started thinking, like, oh, we should have him on the show. Um, so uh, how did that fundraiser go? It went very well. Hey, I have to send up a smoke signal right now. I just got the low battery uh, alert on my phone. Okay. Well, we're I'm almost at time. Through. So, yeah, we're just going to through and I hope I yep. don't lose you but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to wrap things up okay. as quickly as I can um, the uh, experience of that sale and I know you told the background of the sale a couple weeks ago so your listeners can go listen to that episode it, the results of the sale were I can only say inspiring it was one of the most remarkable experiences I've had as an historian um, a whole community came together and this was a fundraiser for immigrants rights and we live in a highly immigrant community here in Chicago, mm-hmm. specifically the Logan Square neighborhood where I live. And a lot of my friends and neighbors have lived in fear uh, for the last three years, and they need help. And Cole, being a good, uh, a good person, Cole Bryce, being a good person and a good neighbor, decided he would sell his Lincoln collection and try to raise funds 
to help uh, the neighbors. Well, we thought all of this kitschy um, Lincolniana uh, might earn him a couple of thousand dollars for the cause. Uh, after Saturday night's sale was done, uh, we had earned the Logan Square Neighborhood Association uh, over $11,000. Wow. Congratulations. That is from people from the neighborhood, from the community, not even necessarily nerds like us that love Lincoln, uh, people that came in to buy Lincoln-themed stuff in order to help the community, help their neighbors. And uh, I'm unrepentantly uh, liberal, uh, so I'll say right out to stand up and resist uh, the current, uh, the current uh, administration or misadministration of the great Republic of the West. I'm right there with you. <laughs> um, so yeah, it worked really well. And uh, the art itself, I hope I have time to go ahead and finish it. The art itself yep. is very personal. And part of it was from this silly story that you talked about a couple of weeks ago when I sold Cole a uh, black velvet Lincoln mm -hmm. um, and someone stole it. And so... The community has lots of artists in it, and they got together and they held them an art show, and all of these artists made their own personal Lincoln uh, to hang in Coles. And all of those Lincolns have a real 21st century millennial feel to it, because these are all young artists who drink at a dive bar in Logan <laughs> Square and wanted to do something for a person they cared for in a place they cared for, and it was just really amazing it made me realize that the if if not the the life story and the history of lincoln that we like to talk about like this that image is perpetual and that image is everywhere and every kid that went to the art institute of chicago and never thought twice about lincoln if they have 10 minutes to think about a work of art they'll come up with something creative uh, by using the um ubiquitous images of Lincoln that just exist in popular culture. And the meaning of that ubiquitous image to them is always going to come back to the same original things that even the historians and history students like us love Lincoln as an aspirational figure, Lincoln as a liberator, Lincoln as somebody who spoke for what our nation should be and can be the person that spoke for what human freedom can be when they, if the best of the United States and Canada is, Thank you. <laughs> is projected, is projected around the world. <laughs> no, that's I, I outstanding. That That's awesome. So was that your, um, this week in Lincoln as well? Was that fundraiser or did you have something specific from the no, fundraiser? I that is my this week in Lincoln. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, we are at time for the show, and I know you're running out of battery on your phone, Bjorn. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This was a wonderful discussion. Um, love to have you thank back you again sometime, uh, maybe to talk public sure, history, we'll whatever. Um, I'm sure we'll find something to talk, to talk about. Shiloh again. Maybe we'll do that. Yes, that, that would be awesome. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. And then next time I'm in Chicago, I'll have to make it to the bookstore. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, All right. I think we'll definitely have to do a road trip there. So uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Nick, do you have any parting words? No, just thank you, Bjorn. It was great. Um, keep doing the good work you're doing. 
um, spreading, you know, the the literature of Lincoln through the internet, the crazy thing we call the internet. Yes. Yes. So huge. Right back at you. And please continue doing the good work you're doing by spreading, uh, spreading the word and proselytizing the message of Lincoln to the internet. Thank you. Um, so to our listeners on behalf of rail splitter, Nick on behalf of Bjorn and from myself, keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you again soon.